Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about keeping time from what could be called a more natural perspective, using easily observed phenomena like the phases of the moon or shadows cast by the sun to track our days. This time, we'll start moving away from those methods towards the ones we use today, though perhaps not as far as you might think. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we've been talking about time. Mostly last time we talked about sort of ancient calendar methods and some timekeeping methods. And so far, some really interesting stuff. First impressions or, or impressions so far, I should say. Oh, neat stuff. Um, one thing that I hadn't heard of before was the uh, using incense with changing scents to mm-hmm. uh, track time. And now I want to know if I can buy that somewhere. Oh, I would imagine. You got to be able to get it somewhere, I, right? I really hope I'm going to look online and find it. The thing is, it's got to be pretty big like it had to be very large for it to burn that long so it might actually be very expensive Uh, i i don't know though it's it's entirely possible you can find it that's true burning for an hour would take a while yeah well and and those ones would burn for multiple hours right um because it would change scent uh, every hour section yeah i I think the main thing i was surprised about when i started doing this uh the the research for this episode was how good a lot of these really early calendars were um, yeah, I would have expected more variation and uh, less accuracy, I think, uh, if I was just kind of guessing, which suggests a couple of things. Number one, um, ancient civilizations, pretty good at measuring this stuff. Hmm. Number two, they probably started a lot longer uh, before even written records existed than, uh, than we're able to necessarily confirm with archaeological records. This whole timekeeping business, uh, very, very old. Yeah, and... I hadn't thought before how much of a cheat code the moon is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, us having a moon is a is a very unusual feature of our of our night sky. Um, many places, in fact, most places don't have something uh, quite that regular. Um, there's there's also I think I mentioned it very briefly, but the fact that the moon is tidally locked is also a weird feature because what that does visually is it looks like it's a, a single body that's kind of getting getting eaten up or disappearing or growing uh, rather than seeing the rotation of it. It doesn't make it as uh, necessarily immediately apparent that it's a spherical body Yeah, um, and tends to lend itself to much more mythical ideas of, of what exactly is going on there. But generally the idea of what's happening with, with the moon is it's, it's right there in the name, like the new moon is the fact that this is a brand new moon. There's a new one made each month and it adds to that cyclical idea of what exactly 
that amount of time passing really means. Mm-hmm. So all that nice stuff being said about uh, ancient civilizations and their excellent calendar keeping abilities, I think it's time we talked about the Romans. The Romans are interesting in that as far as advanced civilizations go, their concern with things like mathematics and astronomy and engineering, uh, it wasn't really their thing. They were kind of the jocks of the ancient world. Did it get them glory? <laughs> they left that math stuff to the nerds down in Egypt and Greece. Um, they just really weren't that interested. And it really shows in their uh, in their calendar. Their first try at setting a, a civic calendar, and keep in mind, Rome was founded less than 3,000 years ago. Their first try at a calendar had a, day, uh, had a year of 304 days. <laughs> Losers. Like, it's, it's so spectacularly bad. It's, they, they, had, they had 10 months. They kind of varied between 29 and 31 days for the most part. And they only got to 304 and they didn't care, which is kind of worse. They just sort of let the calendar slide around the, the tropical year. The tropical year being uh, uh, the year that's sort of equinox to equinox that follows the uh, the seasons. They just kind of let it be. And when it got too far out of whack, as in like extremely noticeably out of whack, they just add in a couple extra days here and there. Not on a regular scale. Like, you know, we've talked about these other civilizations who have like very regular, you know, every six years add a month or, or, or something like that that actually keeps them pretty close. Oh, you mean the nerd civilizations? Yeah, exactly. And the amount of variation that was considered unacceptable by some of these civilizations was like an extremely small amount. It was, it was on the order of maybe a couple of days, sometimes a week or two. But the ones with a week or two have like full month uh, adjustments built into the entire system. Right. They just sort of threw on a bunch of days at the end of the year. And a lot of times there's like a full like two months in the winter where they just didn't have a month. It was just not. It was all intercalary time. They just <laughs> didn't. They weren't days, I guess. The setting of these days uh, was actually a religious matter. It's done by uh, the Pontifex. Yes. So, so as far as the actual sort of public life went they just sort of did whatever the priests are telling them to do here fairly early on they realized that this is not very accurate and they did end up adding two extra months that would end up being uh, january and february so the year started in uh, march so this time would get added on into february because february is the last month at that point once they rounded up to 12 months um which is where we get the tradition of putting leap years and or uh, uh sorry leap days into the end of february oh. it's the old end of the roman calendar okay that because i've always wondered why why february yeah. why why that yeah that, that's that's where that comes from i'm saying all this like those two extra months fixed things it didn't years could vary anywhere from 355 to 378 days um <laughs> Again, they weren't good at this nerd stuff. <laughs> they tried their best. I mean, partially it's that they were bad at calculating this stuff out, but partially it's the 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 role of Pontifex wasn't um, at least as you get into the Republic, it wasn't entirely a, a religious one. I mean, yes, it is religious, but you're also elected. And here's the thing: politics in Rome acts on a yearly cycle. Roles are reelected every single year. And if you have a year of a varying cycle and you are the guy who just determines how long that year lasts, you can just add on a couple extra weeks and stay in power longer. That seems slightly suspicious. 
but yeah, it's it's absolutely a, a conflict of interest to have the the person who determines the end of, uh, the, the length of the year uh, also be someone whose uh, uh, power is determined by the length of that year. And yeah, that feels very Roman, doesn't it? Though, yeah, these years they they had eight day weeks actually, with the eighth day being like a market day, so everyone would take off work and go. Well, except for the vendors. except for the vendors, uh, and go shop at the markets. This is where you start getting uh, a lot of the month names that we're fa- familiar with. Um, some they're going to drop, some they're going to add, but um, specifically uh, September, October, November, December all come from uh, Latin numbers, right? Seven, eight, nine, ten, respectively. There was also a, a Quintus and Sextus, or months named after five and six in there. Those will get uh, replaced in time. All of this confusion, it was actually called the era of confusion by future uh, uh, historians. It was so uh, difficult to keep track of what was going on uh, and all of that, that that they kind of went like, this is this is outrageous. Like, what are we doing here? Um, another very confusing feature, I guess, of, of the Roman year is that where other places were dealing with uh, regnal years, where, you know, so-and-so has been king for 12 years and it's the 12th year of his reign. And when right. he dies in year 17, then it's year one of the next ones. They went by consular years. So they named years by who was consul in those years. And there's always two consuls. But the thing is, Roman names are really repetitive. Yeah. And power tended to concentrate in certain families. And consular years only lasted one year, but you could run for consul in multiple years, just not consecutive years. Well, I mean, eventually, yes, consecutive years, but in general, that's how it's supposed to work. So you could have two completely different years that are like seven years apart with two completely different sets of consuls that have the exact same names. And again, we run into a problem that we talked about with regnal years last time, which is without knowing history really carefully, how do those year names mean anything at all? Uh, they, they just don't. It feels like a trap. And in this case, it's, it's even more uh, difficult to keep all of that stuff straight. So they had a really hard time keeping records. This is one of the uh, reasons that when people talk about like ancient Roman history and like, ah, none of these dates are certain, some of it is like confusion and, and mistrust in like the veracity of the sources. Some of it is, how long was that year? Mm-hmm. Yay, being a historian. It's really difficult. So when, when people are putting anything, basically anything within the Roman Republic or the Roman Kingdom period, anytime someone's putting a date to that stuff, there is a giant asterisk beside it because uh, it's, it's something like that, probably. Never mind the sort of pseudo-legendary nature of some of those sources. I mean, I don't know a lot about early Roman history, but what I have learned, it it seemed very hazy in terms of timeline mm-hmm. and my perception at that time of learning about it was that no just recording history at that point was was pretty vague and inaccurate sure oh no it, it sounds like they just were really crap at calendars and other places in the world you go and you'd have a perfectly laid out timeline yeah and, and i mean it's 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 kind of somewhere halfway between those two things but Fair. but yeah in terms of in terms of uh, uh what is causing the complications here it's it's not just that that poor uh record keeping you're right if you were to go to uh, another civilization for, for for example egypt is pretty good about this stuff if they tell you that it was 17 years ago it's pretty much exactly 17 years ago not 17 ish in the mid 40s bce a little guy named julius caesar maybe you've heard of him he did a bit of a world tour he saw a lot of different places he saw gaul he saw britannia saw greece he saw oh he did the grand tour thing that you do when you're yeah a young general gap year 
Um, yeah. He saw Egypt. He saw all of these places with properly functioning calendars <laughs> and went, wait, what are we doing here? Part of it is this like high-minded civic duty of like, we as Romans can be better. Part of it is that uh, he didn't want Pontifexes messing with his his length of rule because as yeah he had a lot of political enemies and that was one more tool against him. He brought back some proposals for reforms to the Roman calendar, and in 45 BCE, um, these are put in place uh, in what's known as the Julian calendar. And the Julian calendar is essentially the source of the Gregorian calendar that we know now with modifications, obviously. But it's really coming from a, com- a combination of Greek knowledge of the length of year uh, with uh, the Egyptian concept of like a fixed length calendar that doesn't need to vary year to year uh, to keep accuracy. And his concept was that he wanted a self-calibrating calendar that at any given time you could look at the date and know exactly what season it was and that the equinox is always going to fall at the same time uh, on the same date, I should say. And that's going to take out all of this ambiguity that gives religious figures this um, this power to kind of just mess with that timeline a little bit. Now, his original conception of this doesn't have leap years at all, so it's going to have problems, obviously. But that foundation is more or less, with a few modifications, going to result in the calendar that you and I use on a daily basis now. Hmm. It allows them to create calendars in advance of those things of those years coming about out so you could plan ahead by several years using one of these calendars a feature you couldn't have when um you had a pontifex who could just go oh yeah it's nine or ten more days until the year starts also around this time a historian named vero uh sets what's known as uh ab urbe condita which is latin for the the year of the city what he does is he counts back through all this very very bad history and decides that the time that Rome is founded is 753 BCE. And we're going to start counting our years from that. This isn't something that like... And then it'd be before city and <laughs> after... I don't think the Romans really cared what came before their city. <laughs> the touche. AUC is, a, is an abbreviation you'll sometimes see in historical uh, sources from... Uh, this time period now i should be clear this isn't something that's being like widely used consular years are still the most common thing but it is something that starts showing up in some of the major historical sources and in the middle ages uh, scholars will go back and add auc notation to some of these historical sources that didn't use them to try and create some semblance of a comprehensive timeline for the roman republic and roman empire this is one of the first examples of what's known as <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, but that's not what I was going to say. Uh, vernacular time or common time. Hmm. The idea being anyone could be able to look at this time uh, related to their own time accurately and that this could be a tool for historians to use to like accurately date things on a continuous time scale. Um, it also has the benefit of being uh, agnostic of when uh, transitions in power are happening. Because regnal years are all great and everything until somebody dies in, I don't know, June or something, where a, a year on the calendar is uh, part of the way through, and now we're starting another regnal year. So does the new year start at a different time every year? Like, how does that work? Uh, in Rome, it's not so bad, mostly because consular elections are held at the same time as the new year, at the beginning of March, kind of on purpose hmm. but it, it is an issue for uh, other places that are using strictly regnal years well, then it 
it seems like an improvement in de-emphasizing the importance of the individual at the top of society mm -hmm. because it stops constructing time around them. Well, on that same note, I would like to point out that Caesar renames uh, Quintus to be Julius after himself. Oh, nice. And gives it an extra day. <laughs> that seems like Caesar. Yeah. So um, now July has 31. After Caesar's assassinated and they go through the entire mess of the Roman Civil War and Augustus comes to power, uh, he makes a couple of tweaks to his great uncle's calendar, adds the leap year every four years, and figure. well, I mean, I say he, he consulted with a lot of mathematicians and astronomers who actually knew what they were talking about. I, I should I should probably clarify that. I, I think most people realize, but it's not like Julius Caesar is like taking time out of a conquering to hand carving calendars himself <laughs> for distribution. Do you want the cat one or the dog one? <laughs> That's what I was thinking when you said it enabled to make calendars ahead of time. Like, oh, now yeah. cat engravings can be all the rage. Six months later, Hallmark was founded. Um, the uh, yeah, the, the leap year is is added, and this is going to give the year uh, in the Julian calendar an average length of 365 and a quarter days hmm. which is very very close it's very close to the tropical year which uh, if you remember is uh 365.24 and some change still not bad especially considering that we started out with a calendar of 304 days pretty good for romans pretty good for romans and by the first century ce um they've moved from eight day weeks to seven day weeks uh, partially to kind of start lining up with the moon a little bit better, partially because of the influence of Judaism on the Roman Empire. Uh, I think a, a lot of people don't realize that for as small as uh, uh, the Hebrews were in terms of population, overall population in the uh, in the empire, the amount of social and political influence that they had was actually pretty high, mostly because they're seen as massive troublemakers um <laughs> we can get into further further reasons why but yeah the the idea of uh, the way that they do things in in that area spreading throughout the 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 empire this isn't the only instance of that at all so by the year well by the year zero on our or by the year one on our system we have a, a calendar with 12 month years it's 365 days uh every fourth year is 366 days to keep it in line about two-thirds of our month names in place. Well, a little more than that. Because Augustus actually names uh, Sextus after himself. Ooh. August. Uh, also gives it 31 days. Sextus? Yeah. Uh, I might have that name. It's it's named after the Latin name for, for six. Okay. Comes before September. Hey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Starting in March. Right. Yeah, starts in March. That's where the whole thing throws off. That's why December number 10 is actually 12 now. I know it gets confusing. Romans, Romans, yeah. We're we're looking at a uh, we're looking at a calendar that looks really quite similar to our own. Um, poor February is down to twenty nine days because it keeps getting days stolen from it because August is thirty one now too. Uh, Super important. In general, we're looking at a very familiar uh, system. The fall of Rome leads to an abandonment of the consulship uh, system of your naming, which is probably a good thing. But what it does lead to uh, is a reversion back to uh, regnal numbering, because all of these uh, disparate kingdoms that are sort of broken up after the fall of Rome uh, start kind of just numbering everything after whatever warlord happens to be running the show that day. The church, though, starts using a system that's known as the Diocletian era, or the era of martyrs. 
And this is actually actually something I'd never come across before. I, I or if I have, I had completely forgotten about it. Under the the Roman Empire, um, at least up until constant uh, until Constantine makes Christianity the official religion, there are a number of periods under which. Um, Christians undergo systemic persecution. The last major one was under the Emperor Diocletian. The church decides to set its uh, year numbering system uh, with that final persecution as year one, because in the early church, those persecutions are seen as an opportunity for martyrdom for early Christians. And so it's commemorating all of these people who have died under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's a fun numbering one so and under the diocletian era year one begins in uh 284 ce of our current system interesting mm-hmm. one of the main uses of the calendar in this time period specifically by the church is for the calculation of easter yes and this is known as the computus and we are not going to spend a lot of time or at least we're going to attempt to not spend a lot of time on the computus because it is a mess and there aren't that many history topics that i've read up on that have like extremely complicated mathematical uh formula in them this one does Mm. like listen i didn't go that far in math i still did fine for the stuff that i did take this was a little over my head i'll be real it's bad here's the deal with the calculation of easter again we'll try and keep it short Uh All the Bible really tells us about when Easter took place is that it was the Sunday after Passover. Passover is calculated by the Hebrew calendar, Mm -hmm. which, uh, if you'll remember, is is based on the Babylonian calendar. And the way that Passover is calculated is, again, based on uh, the story from Exodus of the, the Jews leaving Egypt. Again, doesn't exactly say like, oh, yeah, that's that's April 14th. There's some complicated stuff going on in calculating exactly when Passover took place. And the exact method of calculating that is that it is the first, uh, well, for Passover, it's the first Friday, um, which is uh, the the Shabbat in, in Jewish tradition. It's the first Friday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Uh, got it. Mm-hmm. Remember, they're using a lunisolar calendar, mm-hmm. so it is a literal full moon, and they are measuring the uh, the equinox fairly carefully. It's a real equinox. Okay. It kind of results in this 19-year cycle that keeps it more or less in line with the tropical cycles, the way that they're adding and subtracting um, days to keep everything in line with the seasons. The Julian calendar, on the other hand, the whole point of it was to tie the equinox to a specific calendar date. Right. And once that goes in place, the Romans actually stop calculating the equinox celestially because they don't care because they're Romans and they're too busy winning. Oh, yeah. With the Romans, they, they want the equinox to be on the 25th. March 25th and September 25th are the two equinoxes. And they don't really care when the actual equinox is taking place. The other thing that the church has done over the centuries is they've stopped actually looking at the moon to check when these moon phases are they've adopted a lunar calendar that's eh, more or less close enough so they're going by the calendar on when full moons are coming they're doing something similar to that remember that alternating 29 and 30 day uh thing that keeps you sort of in line with 29 and a half day uh, lunar cycle and when the church is looking to calculate when easter takes place 
they're doing a calculation that's really similar to the Passover one. They're calculating the first Sunday because it's the Sunday after Passover. So they're, they're calculating the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. But they're doing all of this off of a calendar. Without reference to the actual moon. Correct. And so you run into this issue where it starts to drift a little bit. This is how accumulating error was discovered essentially yeah and you get to a point uh in the in the fourth century where the church realized that what they were about to calculate out as easter was not the same as what the the hebrew calendar was going to calculate for passover this came up at the council of nicaea and if you're not familiar with the council of nicaea it took place in 325 and it was one of the most important uh, single events in early Christianity. It's a, it's a council where they got together all of these church leaders and they decided on some really fundamental uh, ideas about how Christianity was going to work. And Like what even is the Bible even? Pretty much. I mean, I mean, they, 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 there's very little unexplored at the Council of Nicaea. Everything was more or less open for uh, at least some debate with a few obvious uh, exceptions, but maybe not as many as most people would think. One of the thing that comes, uh, things that comes up at this council is how do we calculate Easter? Are we okay with the fact that the way we work out Easter using our calendar might be different than what the Jewish people are using to calculate out Passover? Is this going to be a problem? And they decide, uh, no, this is not a problem. This is our own thing. It doesn't need to, uh, we, we don't need to base that on Judaism anymore. And that, that comes up in other places in the Council of Nicaea as well. There's a sort of separation because there, there's, there's a lot of parallels uh, in the very, very early church between Judaism and Christianity that they start kind of shedding as uh, it becomes more uh, of a global phenomenon. So one of the things is they're just fine with Easter being different than when Passover is happening. This is, this is okay with them. And that's great. They go on with their, they go on with their time. And what that allows them to do is... Uh, project forward really far when Easter is going to occur. They can tell you the next 10, 20, 50 years the date that Easter is going to be because they're just using these repeating cycles right. uh, to calculate all this stuff out. In the year 525, uh, uh, a monk named uh, Dionysius Exiguus is working on one of these new tabs, uh, one of these new tables for when Easter is going to come about. And this is something that they've been doing for uh, 200 years at this point. And he's working away and he goes, these years, these Diocletian years, I'm not sure I really want to give like Diocletian the honor of being the guy that we're naming all of these after. It's a bit dubious. It's a, it's a little, it's a little macabre. So he goes, I can kind of think of a better place that we could count back to, which is the birth of Christ. So he sits down. An obscure figure in Christianity. <laughs> Um, not everyone's heard. Uh, no, uh, he, he starts counting back based on the, you know, year one of Diocletian. He, he starts counting back using the consular years of the, of the, uh, Roman empire to the year that, uh, at his best calculation is the year that Christ was born. And he sets that as year one and he calls it Anno Domini, uh, the year of our Lord, or sorry, the year of the Lord. And he says, let's start counting from there from now on. And yeah, it's not exactly a hit immediately. Again, keep in mind that the church is really the only one that's using this like ongoing common year. Most places are still using regnal years. But he's the first one to do that. He's the first one to make that calculation. Now, as far as we can tell, he made some mistakes. Uh, that year was not uh, accurate to the best of our knowledge, both on the sources that he had and on uh, further 
analysis over the ensuing centuries. But that's that's where our current common era year one comes from, is this uh, this monk deciding that he doesn't like the current year and he's going to do better. Nice and airtight. <laughs> one of the nice things about common eras is it doesn't really matter when it starts, just as long as everyone agrees on what year it is. I think that's the frustrating part about it. How is that any more arbitrary than any of the other things that we're talking about? I think about? that's the frustrating thing about it. Uh, arbitrary systems can be very frustrating. They can also kind of be a little bit liberating where you can kind of go, you know what, it's all made up. This is fine. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Uh, as long as we all know what we're talking about. Um, but yes, it can certainly go either way. <laughs> this system, the, the Anno Domini system, um, is barely heard of until it's adopted by someone outside of the clergy. It's a it's an, an English historian named Bede. He's actually quite famous. It comes up in a number of places. In 731, he starts using the Anno Domini system to date English history, but it doesn't really take on like widespread use. It, that's that's just sort of where people get wind of the fact that like yeah, there is this other system that can be used. Maybe it's a better system than these kings, which honestly sometimes they're dying like a lot in this era. <laughs> Yeah. They, they die very frequently. It's really rough. It doesn't take on widespread use in Europe until between the 11th and 14th centuries in a lot of cases. I think everyone thinks of it as this whole thing where, like, for example, you'll sometimes get the question of, like, did were, were people worried about the year 1000 the same way that they worried about the year 2000? And the answer in uh, some cases is yes, but mostly within the church, mm-hmm. because those are the only people who are counting by that system. There's a lot of people who never really had a year 1000 in Europe. Right. That just wasn't a thing for them. The uh, the latest adoption of the Anno Domini system was Portugal, who didn't adopt it until 1422. Hmm. They were using, uh, uh, I believe it's the Caesarian system, where they uh, they were dating it from a like an emperor's edict uh, during the Roman Empire, and they had continued it on this entire time. It, it's it's a system that's not used anymore. It was kind of... I was about to say kind of arbitrary, but considering what we've just been talking about, uh, I'll, I'll walk that one back. Okay. It's kind of a forgotten backwater edge of the empire type situation where they just never never quite changed. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the system in... Or, uh, the situation in the Iberian Peninsula was always a unique one in, in Europe, right? You have... On one hand, a very long tradition of exploitation by the Roman Empire. Uh, on the other hand, it wasn't really united until the end of the 15th century. Uh, and even then, Portugal is never really united with the rest of the, the peninsula, right? Um, but throughout this entire time, you know, in 1422, there, there are many centuries into occupation by the Moors. And so uh-huh. there's this kind of cultural crossroads between the uh, the uh, Islamic world and the Christian one uh, within the Iberian Peninsula that sort of, I don't want to say leaves it behind because in a lot of ways it actually gives it a lot of uh, advantages considering some of the advances we were talking about last time in the in uh, you know, astronomy and, and mechanical engineering in that time. But when it comes to something like consistency in dating systems, like, listen, there, there weren't a lot of monasteries that were getting, like, very direct information from uh, Rome at that point in time. They were kind of doing their own thing. Uh, they kind of had to. So the AD system is still used in a lot of cases uh, alongside regnal years. But the benefits are really clear fairly quickly. It's it's A lot of people are calling it. It's, it's, a, it's an ecclesiastic calendar. It's used for religious purposes. But it also gives people, a, like, like, a common touchstone, right, of, of what, like, what, when are we? 
if you're English and you're talking to someone who's French and you know you're you know you're in year whatever of of Edward the whichever number and they're in year whatever of uh, Louis, Louis whatever most likely uh, that's not really helpful but if you're both in you know 1517 we know what we're talking about here it's a map in the time dimension yes and it's really useful for a lot of non-ecclesiastic things like for example trade and as the trade networks spread across europe and, and europe becomes more and more interconnected uh over the centuries having that common touchstone is really important to people there's a problem though by the 16th century the calendar is off from the tropical year by a full 10 days hmm. that's a big drift that's a much bigger drift than most other societies are willing to tolerate most other societies have things built into in place to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen now it's not that it's a surprise it's not as though everyone just stopped uh, observing when equinoxes were taking place it's that the calendar that you would have to mess with in order to make changes is the one that's being used to calculate the most important holiday in christianity that's a tough sell yeah but at the beginning of the 16th century something big happens it's the Protestant Reformation. And all of a sudden, everything kind of back up for consideration because one of the results of that Reformation is that the Catholic Church goes back and starts examining, hey, why would someone want to leave us? And they kind of find a bunch of things. Um, yeah, they find some issues. And there's a, an entire council, again, opening up all of these issues, very similarly to, to Nicaea. It's in 1545, the Council of Trent, where they're basically going, do we need to make some significant changes to the way we do things? And one of the things that's brought up at this council is like, listen, our calendar is not good. Yeah. It's bad. We're doing a bad job. And the angle that's taken here is actually really interesting. They go, when the calculation of Easter was set in Nicaea in 325, here's what the sky looked like, basically. And a really major factor of that calculation was the full moon itself as well as the equinox those are two out of the three factors that calculate out easter we should be calculating easter the way that they calculated it in 325 and that means figuring out how to get ourselves back to the sky in 325 matching the dates in 325 that is the most bringing it back to grassroots version of calculating easter that we can do it's a really interesting tactic yeah that's surprisingly sensible i think probably there were a bunch of people sat down at some point and thought about what is the only way we can get this to fly yeah and this is a pretty good one honestly church leaders were fairly open to this they don't change fast nothing in the church changes fast they brought in a bunch of mathematicians a bunch of astronomers to consult on all of this they spent decades talking it over trying to figure out what the best way to approach this issue is they also had the Reformation to deal with. That was also occupying some of their time. But what they came up with was basically the Julian calendar, as we talked about, it averages exactly 365.25 days, which means it is 11 minutes longer than the tropical year. Every year, you're 11 minutes longer than you should be. So you're gaining time. Over 400 years, that's almost exactly three days of variation. That'd do it. Uh, a physician actually named Aloysius uh, Lilius proposes reducing the number of leap years in a 400 year period from 100 to 97. That reduction of three days over that period uh, should bring us back in line pretty nicely. There's a number of astronomers including like head Vatican astronomer uh, Christopher Clavius 
go over this whole thing and confirm that like yes this will actually bring us back in line with the trap the, the tropical year that would have been in place with uh, or at the time of the council of nicaea so remember when caesar set the calendar he wanted those uh, equinoxes on the 25th of march and september by the time of nicaea it had already drifted so it was the 21st so they decided to reset the equinoxes to uh, March and September 21st. Not because that was the original intent of Julius Caesar, but because right. that was the situation in Nicaea. Then they uh, they also redid the um, the lunar calendar to match back up with the phases. It had drifted about four days. It hadn't drifted quite as badly, but there was still some drift there. The Gregorian calendar still isn't perfect. The new rule there is that there's no uh, leap year in century years unless that century year is divisible by 400. Right. So 1700, not a leap year. 1800, not a leap year. 1900, not a leap year. 2000, still a leap year, even though it's a century year. Right. It's a pretty elegant solution. Gregorian named after Pope Gregory? Yes, he's the Pope uh, in the year that it's it's implemented, Gregory the 13th. The Gregorian calendar is still 20 sec- 27 seconds too long. Hmm. But that's not bad pretty close it's pretty good for context that means it drifts off by one day every 3236 years yeah that's that's pretty good it's not bad and the elegant thing there is it's still marrying a lunar calendar to a solar calendar even though it's not perfectly uh lunisolar like it's not beginning months based on the phases of the moon it's able to incorporate roughly moon phase long months into a solar year that isn't drifting tropically now does it have a provision for correcting the leap day every three thousand and however many days uh, years you said there are theoretical proposals out there it hasn't been a problem yet yeah but we need to cover all our bases (laughs) um in in very recent years there have been a lot of different proposals for uh either either corrections to the gregorian calendar to make sure that that correction takes place or just like let's throw the entire thing out and start from a pure math perspective and those ones are frankly annoying um it'll just be simpler (laughs) sure yeah we'll go with that print all new kitten calendars i i think i think when we get to the point when we where we need to drop exactly one leap year from the rotation to bring us back in line um i feel like as a society we'll be able to come together and figure that out gosh i hope so (laughs) i love being optimistic about the future yeah in Uh, year 3000 and well more like 5000 yeah yeah. so yeah pope gregory the 13th officially adopts it in 1582 and here's the wild thing originally the proposals were let's um Let's adjust leap years until over the next 400 years, basically. We'll bring those 10 days back gradually. We'll make the corrections that we need to. And they went, nope, we'll just fix it. We'll just fix it now. And so on Thursday, October 4th, 1582, uh, everyone went to sleep and they woke up on Friday, October 15th. Yikes. This is only in Catholic nations that kind of signed up, but fortunately the king of Spain at the time, uh, who also 
had a lot of uh, Italy and a number of uh, the principalities in the Holy Roman Empire, like a lot of places in Europe, um, was totally on board. And so basically everyone in those places, uh, as well as well as the Vatican itself, uh, any church uh, institutions, all of those places just lost 10 days. They were gone. There was no uh, October 5th through 14th that year. I mean, if you have them on board, you, you're doing pretty well. A lot of Protestant nations thought that this was some sort of Catholic plot. <laughs> I can't blame them. Which I, I couldn't find a lot more information on how they figured it was a Catholic plot exactly. Plot or prank. <laughs> oh, Pope. Um, that was a good one. But they didn't trust it. And they didn't get on board right away. That being said, the benefits of having a properly calibrated calendar become apparent fairly quickly. England being England, they always kind of liked keeping a little closer to Catholic traditions without actually admitting it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the whole game plan of the the um, uh, Anglican Church for for a, a chunk of its uh, history, at least. Um, they in 1750 adopt the Gregorian calendar, but they don't call it that. They call it like the English Standard Calendar or something like that. It would make absolutely no reference to the Gregorian calendar whatsoever. It's entirely different. Yeah just happens to have all the same leap years and the same number of days in the month and uh they altered their uh, uh calculation of easter to match the calculation by anyways and there's also a day set aside specifically for divorce paperwork filing <laughs> that's a good one i like that a lot the orthodox church because of the schism also completely distrusts the uh the catholic church and decides they want absolutely no part in this they're going to continue calculating uh easter based on the old julian calendar you, you still, of course, outside of Europe, have various other calendars in place that have significantly more influence. The Muslim calendar has, uh, or the Islamic calendar has a lot of uh, influence through a, a good portion of the world. Um, that's a purely lunar calendar, which is a really interesting one. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. India and China are using kind of variations on lunisolar calendars still. Things like regnal years rather than uh, a common year. But eventually, over the course of uh, uh, centuries, the Gregorian calendar, for a number of factors, starts winning out as, as the common calendar. Some of it is, hey, this works really well, which is really attractive. Some of it is, hey, Europe got real uh, uh, conquesty over a couple of centuries there. Did they? There was a lot of colonizing going on, and they tended to enforce their ways on these places. So, hey, if you weren't already dazzled by the uh, incredible technology that is the Gregorian calendar... Uh, that's too bad. We're putting in magistrates now who uh, they use that and you better learn to work in that or you will just not be able to navigate these governmental systems. Um, we also have guns. It's a very effective policy. The uh, yeah, Protestant um, states in, in Europe eventually come around across uh, basically uh, over the whole 18th century. They're slowly adopting these things. Eastern Europe, uh, which was largely under the influence of the Orthodox Church, I mean, anywhere from like the early 19th century through to as late as World War One, uh, in terms of adoption. I mean, it's one of those quirks of history. Sometimes you'll hear it that the uh, the uh, the Russian Revolution, the October Revolution, uh, actually starts in November uh, by the Gregorian calendar, simply because of this drift. Because Russia was still using the Julian calendar at this okay. point in time because of the Orthodox Church. Even as all of these Eastern European countries adopt the Gregorian calendar. The, the Orthodox Church is still going to keep the Julian calendar for religious purposes, which is why, well, I mean, 
even people that you and I went to school with, uh, uh, sometimes get two Christmases because they happen to be of an Orthodox faith. And mm. Christmas is about 12 days later uh, in the Orthodox Church than it is in the, the standard Gregorian calendar. It's an interesting little feature. It also means that Easter can vary from as little as uh, a week to as much as a, more than a month apart in the two oh systems. Yeah, it, it gets quite, quite drifty. And throughout the rest of the world, basically, if you have a revolution in this period of time, you probably adopt the Gregorian calendar as your new calendar. This is true in both violent revolutions, such as the Russian Revolution or uh, the Chinese Revolution in 1912. So we're not talking about the, the Communist Revolution, but yeah. rather the, the Republican one that overthrows the, uh, the emperor. Both of those uh, resulted in the adoption of the Gregorian calendar. But you also get um, more... Or, or less violent, I suppose, uh, revolutions such as the Meiji Restoration in Japan, where the main driving factor is we need to modernize or else be left behind. One of those modernizing uh, efforts was the adoption of the Gregorian-style calendar. Right. It's a pretty good calendar. It's one of the best that we've come up with in terms of uh, maintaining its own accuracy without frequent knowledgeable intervention uh, in order to continue marking the tropical year. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting invention that we don't really put a lot of thought into. It just kind of goes around and around. We also don't put a lot of thought into it, and that causes potentially some issues. For example, why do our months vary the way that they do in terms of length? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But also, how confident would you feel that you could organize a global effort to make February longer than 28 days and maybe take a couple of 31-month day, uh, days, 31-day months down to 30? really couldn't and it hurts me it it probably wouldn't go that well so yeah that more or less brings us to modern calendars at least in a a good chunk of the world at least with the calendar that we use today that's how we get the year 2018 that's how we get the months that we do that's how we get the rules for uh leap years that we do and surprisingly given the varying uh mathematical solutions to this issue that we've seen it kind of seems like we might have actually come up with the best solution and gotten it into widespread use or at least very close to it compared to some of the other ones it's not always the way that things like this go no i'd say that improvement obvious improvements would be in standardizing the month Mm -hmm. lengths somewhat yeah or like putting all the variation in one month Mm -hmm. but both have been uh uh proposed by a number of people um, the variation of one month suggests actually, interestingly enough, a return to a lunisolar calendar, mm. um, because what you would do at that point is tack it to a, a an alternating 2930, uh, which gives you the 354 days and then have a shortened correction month, right? which is kind of a wild concept. Or 12, 30 day months and then five days of party. I mean, can we please? Anyways when we let's take a break there and when we come back we'll talk about both some advancements in modern timekeeping and potentially some alternative calendars just for just some fun are we going to talk about the metric time oh we're going to talk about metric time don't you worry we'll be right back we're back on hi 101 here with dan mcginnis hello and we've been talking mainly about calendars again this time but i think it's time we get back to clocks we left them off in a really interesting place namely that we finally figured out that the hour can be a standardized length of time craziness it's it's quite the uh it's quite the the development uh ibn al-shatir figured out in 1371 that if you have a sundial 
with the uh, the gnomon, sort of the uh, it's usually a triangular little thing that casts the shadow sticking up from the sundial. Uh, if you have it at an exactly parallel angle to the axis of the Earth, doesn't matter what time of year it is, the shadow will sweep across a sundial at the exact same rate. This entire time, clockmaking had been focused on replicating the uh, the behavior of a sundial, uh, specifically the fact that the day was divided up into 12 hours no longer, no matter how long the daylight actually lasted for. If it is the winter solstice and it is the shortest day of the year, that has 12 hours of daylight. If it is the longest day at the summer solstice, that has 12 hours of daylight. Those hours just change length. And that's what everyone was chasing. And it's a really hard thing to chase. This idea doesn't, it doesn't necessarily spread out of the Islamic world for a little while, but once it finally does, sundials with fixed uh, hours become incredibly popular. First of all, it starts off as kind of a fad. It's almost like a, it's like a party trick. It's something very, very fancy to, uh, to have and to own because they have to be calibrated to exactly where you are. I was going to say, is this a new profession spring up? Sundial calibrators? You're not far off, honestly. There's there's people who are professionally making these things and, and calibrating these things. Um, the, the thing is, they tend to be for for very wealthy people, so it's a it's a limited number of craftsmen. But we're also talking about the 1400s, where we're kind of in like the middle of that whole renaissance uh you know just just buy yourself a painter and and just have him paint beautiful things and you own that painter that that level of patronage right we're right in that and and the idea that somebody could spend their life just making these intricate beautiful marble sundials that are perfectly calibrated to you know the garden of the person who's paying them it's not that outrageous really it actually sounds kind of nice. It sounds very nice. There's a lot of things about that era that sound quite nice. Um, yeah. It was a it was an era of, of economic excess, and it, it certainly showed. Yeah, the Black Death sounds less nice. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, we don't have to talk about that part. Okay. The understanding of why exactly these sundials worked, though, was a little bit less well spread. Certainly, the people who are installing them and like designing them understand it, but. You have uh, instances of people uh, buying a sundial from one place and carrying them long distances. You know, they went they went to find the greatest sundial maker and they bought the sundial there and they carried them and, and don't realize for as much as a century that like, hey, this thing doesn't work here. <laughs> At least not the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Meanwhile, the people who are building clocks as measuring instruments rather than better to describe the sundial at that point uh sort of a, a display of the amount of time uh, the amount of light left in the day uh, people are looking for like a, a consistent unit of time largely again it's it's religious people who we're talking about it's monks it's it's uh, uh people who are doing um scholarly work in a religious context uh, a lot of the astronomical discoveries that are being made in this period are being made by monks you also have, you know, in, in kind of parallel to all of this, alchemists, but so often those are overlapping categories of things that I, I don't need to, I don't know that we need to necessarily get into all the differences. You could do a whole episode about that. And I have, and it was a very good one, I think. I enjoyed that one a lot. It's a lot of fun. Uh, that was with Miller, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good times. Anyway, Go check it out. It's, it's worth checking out. I think it holds up really well. Um, just an interesting body of knowledge that kind of exists alongside the, the normal uh, narrative of, of Western knowledge. Um, but anyways, if there's anything you need to know, know about monks, it's that they like keeping a schedule. They really like keeping a schedule. Yeah. They need to know when to do different activities. They need to know when to say different prayers. They need to have all of that stuff worked right out. And it was really common for most of the early clockmakers to be uh, monks building these things custom for monasteries. And they would often take the form of 
they, they wouldn't have faces necessarily. The the earliest clocks are oh, oh the clocks. Yes, <laughs> come on now. The clocks wouldn't have faces. the The earliest clocks were bells. They they would chime the hours, um, because you needed to. I, I mean, they were big. You couldn't have them just in your room with you. You needed to know the time, no matter where you were in the monastery. And the best way to do that is with the, the bell. Were they room sized things? Yes. Yeah, the mechanisms were quite big. Were there forward-looking monks who said, someday this is going to fit on your wrist? I highly doubt it. Um, <laughs> honestly, honestly. Let me tell you about the Verge escapements. Hmm. We talked about escapements a little bit uh, in the first half. The escapement is this idea that you take some sort of continuous input of kinetic energy and turn it into an uh, intermittent input where where something uh, uh, increases by a set increment at a set level of time. And it sounds like a sort of arbitrary distinction, but what that allows you to do is advance, well, usually like a hand of a clock or, or what have you, by a set increment at a set rate, rather than sort of hoping that the that the um, potentially variable input keeps at average the right amount of time. Interestingly, that in in at least in digital electronics, uh, the term clock I think almost always is used to represent something that is only that something mm-hmm. that quantizes time and outputs at a regular rate. And it's interesting to hear that that is a development and. Time, of course, is continuous, mm-hmm. and so it should seem obvious. But Yeah, it's interesting because all the earliest uh, timekeeping devices are very continuous, right? You have the sweep of the shadow of a, of a, uh, a sundial, or you have you know, flow of water, you have burning incense, all of that stuff. It's very continuous. What you get is a similar problem to the problem of measuring the equinox very early on, which is, I know when it's about the equinox. When is the exact equinox? When is the moment that it's the equinox? And that is a measurable thing, but it's a difficult thing, right? The same thing is, I know when it's been about an hour, but when has it been exactly an hour? When does it hit one hour? And that level of uh, quantification is impossible without an incremental progression of time. You need that tick. Literally, the ticking of a clock is one of its key innovations, and it's something that we think of as very ubiquitous. Like the idea of a clock ticking is, is, I mean, we don't hear it everywhere the way we used to, but it's not a sound we think a lot about. When it's used symbolically, it's about the progression of time. But it's also very literal. Like you need that mechanism to properly measure time. Otherwise, it's always going to be approximate. I'm reminded of the save icon in computer programs. Mm, yeah, still a floppy disk. The floppy diskette that... Children now grow up recognizing as the save icon mm-hmm. and not as a physical thing. Yeah. Or the phone button on your, well, phone looking like the handset of a an old rotary phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of art, uh, artifacts like that. The Verge escapement should be counted as one of the greatest human inventions. And I doubt it makes the list all that often. We need it. Just the way we need the measurement of time in, in, in every other aspect of our lives, this is this is the this is the item that that makes that possible. And and to be clear, it's not it's no longer only mechanical. The um, you know the digital clock that you were you were referencing earlier, it's working under the same principles, right? It's that incremental ticking. It doesn't matter if your watch is digital or if it's a, a mechanical watch. It's still using an escapement to uh, to tell time to count that progression. What is the Verge escapement? So 
An escapement is any mechanism that allows you to incrementalize a, a continuous input. The Verge escapement specifically is a gear with teeth that on one side are at uh, a 90 degree angle and on the other side are a 45 degree angle. So as it turns, it allows an input that's oscillating back and forth. To, so it's a ratcheting thing. It's, it, it's a ratchet. Yeah, yeah. It it, it allows it to, to something to that's rotating back and forth to progress it in only one direction at a set interval. That oscillation uh, originally was uh, in water clocks, so it's this uh, continuous movement of the um, uh, the water wheel, and it only allows it to move forward uh, at a set amount of time. But as you move forward um, into actual mechanical clocks in the 13th century, basically. Uh, they actually begin using weights. So they'll have a, a giant weight that once a day needs to be wound. So you wind up the, the rope that it's hanging off of and it turns a, uh, uh, a shaft just by the virtue of gravity. And the turning of that shaft advances this verge escapement, allowing the movement of the clock. So originally winding clocks means ratcheting up giant weights. Mm. And you'll actually see uh, uh, certain clocks still using uh, that mechanism, usually alongside a pendulum for... for um, kind of evening out timekeeping, but they, they'll they'll use uh, weights hanging by chains out of the bottom of clocks. You'll you'll occasionally see those. I hope I'm describing this well. Honestly, if if it's if it's not making any sense, um, there are there are many animated gifs that explain this a lot better than I do. So it, it might not be the worst idea to look it up. If you're interested in more information, I'll probably uh, link one in the show notes as well. But um, this is one of those things that visual might help a little bit. And they are really satisfying to look at. Oh goodness, yes. Little animations of these mechanisms they 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 press buttons they're mm -hmm. good absolutely the earliest known clock that's uh still in any even remotely usable condition uh is in the clock tower of the salisbury cathedral uh built in 1386 and all it did was chime hours it had no face but it was using this mechanism the mechanism was likely developed somewhere between 1270 and 1300 ce we're not sure exactly who figured it out because this is one of those deals where Monks didn't always take credit for stuff like this. It was often sort of a communal achievement. Those years are based on the fact that there was a writing in about 1271 where people knew they had to figure out a or a mechanism that works as an escapement, but they hadn't figured out how to do it yet. And then by 1300, there was a there was one that was built, but they claimed that it was not the first. So it was somewhere in there. We just don't know exactly where. Sometimes everyday uh, inventions are hard to pin down. Very quickly, though, these started advancing in uh, complexity, uh, and the number of things that it was trying to measure uh, grew quickly. Like orreries also become really. I was about to ask. Yeah, not until about the 1700s, but again, based on the same stuff, people building uh, working mechanisms of the uh, the solar system where uh, planets advance around the sun. I mean, it, first of all, you have to figure out a heliocentric. Uh, model of the solar system yeah. uh, and get that widely uh, accepted and then you have to uh, apply a bunch of very complicated clockwork gears to it but it's a really satisfying application i mean i bet you could build one without a heliocentric model it would just be a nightmare to build the mechanics for oh people did i'm sure they did and and they were they're they're, they're crazy they're yeah. they're very interesting though um no people fought, fought very hard to keep the an Earth-centric model of the universe for a very long time, but that's that's another topic. Spring-driven clocks appear in the 14th, or sorry, in the 15th century, and those ones are difficult because springs don't exert a constant level of 
uh, force. So they were working on building, you know, secondary springs to modulate the amount of input of force, and they were kind of messy, but at least they weren't having to actually physically lift large weights to make them work. Springs are much better at storing potential energy than just simply lifting weights off the ground. Yeah. In the 1650s, they figure out pendulum timekeeping. Pendulums are interesting. If you swing something, it swings at a fixed rate. It just keeps swinging. They figured out that if you have a pendulum at a set length long, you could, and it's it's a little over three feet, um, you could have a pendulum that would uh, naturally uh, uh, swing at a rate of one per second back and forth. And this is the origin of the grandfather clock. They were built to accommodate a three foot long pendulum for accurate timekeeping. So those start showing up in sort of the 1650s. I, I've heard of a grandmother clock. I think my grandmother actually had one. And they're smaller than grandfather clocks. Yes. Do they have smaller pendulums? They and do. If, what? How, what? Uh, gear ratios. <laughs> that would infuriate me. It's taking slightly faster than one second, but it's geared down so it works. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, the pendulum is accurate enough that a new, a very new thing for clocks uh, finally appears. Uh, the minute. Before this, clock faces, uh, when they had faces at all, uh, marked out hours. And interestingly enough, sometimes the number of hours that it displayed uh, varied. We can go off on this quick tangent. Um, why put 12 hours on a clock? It ended up being convention because you have 12 hours of daytime and 12 hours of nighttime. But there were also clocks with 24 hours on them, and it made a full sweep once a day. Uh, in, in fact, to this day, there are 24-hour clocks, sometimes used in like military uh, applications or other places that 24-hour time is, is consistently used. There were also six-hour faces, and it went around four times per day. It's not really... Again, it's one of those things that we kind of take for granted, but you don't need 12 hours on the face of a clock. You just need it to be pointing to the right thing. Um, but in any case, the minute... First of all, let's let's talk about what's going on with minutes uh, in terms of their names. Minutes and seconds. Minute actually comes from the same root word as minute. It, it means small. And its original name is first minute. And the original name for a second is second minute. And there was actually a third minute, and it was a 60th of a second. Hmm. Um, but over time, we dropped the first from minute, and we dropped the minute from second. And that's how we end up with the names that we have now. That's an easy-to-follow sentence. <laughs> I really hope that made some sense. Um, yeah, I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't make clocks accurate enough. And, and keep in mind, this is pre-industrial. People were hand-creating like, every single piece of these clockwork mechanisms. That verge escapement had to be built by hand. Every single tooth had to be filed to a specific uh, angle by hand. They are very difficult to make. Mm. What's more, the metals that they were making them out of, if they were using metal at all, because sometimes wood was involved, they were relatively soft. They were uh, susceptible to temperature changes. They were um, they they wore easily. There's a lot of things that put them behind the starting line in terms of accuracy to begin with. Then when you don't even have the pendulum to kind of keep time properly, I mean, a lot of those clocks were varying by like an hour a day quite easily. So. Did the concept of minutes and seconds exist before we could build the clocks for them? We have no record of where exactly those concepts come from initially. Uh, they did uh, exist before clocks were built that, that could measure them. It's just that uh, they were generally used more uh, to deal with like subdivisions of degrees of a circle. Um, right. Because it's it's the same concept as what we're using as a clock, right? And you'll see that in latitude and longitude 
uh, measurements today, right? You'll have the degrees and then the minutes and seconds. That's that's the original use. It's the, this idea of a 60th division of that uh, of that measurement. And 60, we once again see a, uh, a reversion back to that base 60 that we originally saw with the Babylonians, where a minute is a 60th of an hour. Uh, it's just a really convenient uh, division in terms of fractions. It's very easy to look at it, see what fraction that is, and extrapolate that to uh, what the the number is out of 60. So that's interesting that we had the label for a thing before we could practically measure it or or really make it a real thing we could experience. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of a book called Flatland. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've read it. Yeah, uh, the summary being um, it gives a great narrative framework for having the concept of what a fourth dimension would be mm-hmm. uh, for us living in three dimensions, I, t- setting time aside, mm-hmm. ironically, without actually that being something that we could experience. It's still, you can easily form the concept of it from the descriptions in that book. That mm-hmm. I mean, seems like a similar a parallel thing. Yeah. And, and from, from my general understanding, it's, it's not as though they weren't discussed in the concept or in, in the context of time, but it's the sort of thing where, Imagine having a, a, a clock with no uh, minute hand markings, but you still have minute hand. And I said to you, you know, what time is it? You could look at it and, and estimate by the angle. You know, uh, it's about, you know, it's about 620, even though you don't actually have the marking for 20 past six. Sure. Um, there is sort of a, a usage of minutes at a, at a less granular level. Uh, before you necessarily have every single minute marked out. It's just that it's this approximation because the uh, accuracy of the thing isn't uh, quite there yet to even bother with something more accurate than to the, you know, every five minutes or every 10 minutes, something like that. It, it is it is a fascinating idea, though, of, of minutes just simply not being in consideration. It's, it's yet another kind of uh, invented measurement of time that just wasn't there before. And, and we don't really need, it's just so prevalent in our lives that we kind of assume that it's uh it's an important component of telling time yeah, it's interesting the idea of it being kind of a hypothetical construct mm-hmm. these pendulum clocks originally uh invented by uh christian huygens i'm probably saying that wrong but he also went all, went on uh not that long after to uh invent the uh the, the spiral spring or hairpin spring if you ever looked uh inside a a watch this is a pretty essential component. It's it's literally just a coiled spring in the spiral. And the thing that's really interesting about this. Oh, by, by the way, Robert Hooke also invented a spiral spring, and it's not as widely used as Huygens, but it was invented about the same time. And from everything I understand of Robert Hooke, he was a mean old bastard, and he, he okay. made sure that he was also given credit for the whole thing. And you're worried about all the hook heads that are going to come out of the wall woodwork and <laughs> criticize you for not bringing up the parallel invention. Yeah. Um, Realistically, though, the the the, um, the spiral spring is a really important thing because it allows for a couple of things. Number one, the miniaturization of the drive spring. Uh, you can just make them very thin. So before now, what did a spring look like? Oh, you were using like an actual uh, coiled spring, but the uh, so imagine you have a slinky and you compress down a spring a slinky and let the um, uh, let it expand and that that pressure uh, back up is what's driving very slowly. Um, the uh, the clockwork mechanism, the spiral the spiral spring is basically a flat strip of of spring steel, and it is wound more like like a spiral. Yeah, it's it's a spiral. Like say say if you took a, a, a 
a, a belt and, and coiled it. Sure. It looks like that. And and it, rather than expanding upwards, it actually expands outwards, but it's uh, uh, it's flat. It's flat the whole time. It doesn't get any thicker. It's a larger diameter. It's sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, spiral, the spiral doesn't stack on itself. The spiral just moves out. And so when you uh, tighten it, the, sp the spring gets smaller in diameter, and when it uh, when it moves, it it moves outwards. What that allows you to do is uh, not only miniaturize it, but also it gives you the um, the ability to. Basically, one of the problems with uh, with clocks was that oscillation movement. If it uh, of the of the escapement, if it was um, if there was any lateral force to it. It could, number one, cause a lot of wear and could, number two, throw off the timing somewhat. So you needed it to be stabilized. And often you'd use like a, a weighted wheel to do that. If you miniaturized it to a portable size, it could very easily, just by moving the, the mechanism, you could throw off the timing. The spring was, uh, was self-stabilizing, which means that there's finally enough uh, technology going into clock making that you could miniaturize it into a carryable size. You don't get the watch without the springs, uh, the, the the spiral spring. Right. And almost right away, watches become incredibly popular, at least with the wealthy. It's interesting because uh, women almost always wore watches as as jewelry on their wrists. Uh, they they call them arm clocks when they started. <laughs> um, but it would be with uh, you know built into bracelets, like like a like a watch. Uh, men almost always as pocket watches. Hmm. Um, the the watch for men actually doesn't really become a thing until. Uh, World War One, essentially. I mean, a little bit before that, but uh, at a point where you need to basically time uh, artillery barrages uh, in in the heat of warfare, uh, while not pulling a pocket watch out of your pocket to do so. Oh, I can picture the some of the officers at those battles doing that. Oh, officers, absolutely, but regular enlisted men, not so much. Yes. Um, yeah, for sure. Fancy gold leaf embossed, honest giant pocket watch, or they're with, holding in their white gloves. The spring also gives another level of stability, which is that navigation at sea was really, really difficult in this era. And one of the best ways to uh, to navigate was using a sextant and then comparing the uh, readings that you're taking to a known fixed location. And for British ships, that this happened to be an observatory in Greenwich. Um, what ships would do was take hourglasses with them. <laughs> Hourglasses are surprisingly resilient for something like this because you have a ship that's pitching. You can't necessarily see the uh, the sky all the time. You have potential uh, temperature variances. Like Magellan went around the world with 18 uh, hourglasses, uh, each worth like an actual hour, and was turning those to keep time. You take the you take the reading at the sky. You check how like what. Uh, what the time difference is based on your hourglasses. You uh, work that back to what the sky would have looked like in Greenwich, and you use that to calculate exactly where you are in the world. It's very tedious, yeah. and a mistake is deadly. Yeah. They started having enough issues with just using hourglasses and things like that because the the, the pitching of the of the ocean tended to throw off clock springs really badly. Remember those uh, those balance wheels were were really uh, sensitive stuff like that. They're finally no longer considered accurate enough by about 1714, and the uh, the British government offers a prize of twenty thousand pounds for anyone who can create what they're calling a chronometer, a clock that is accurate to less than ten seconds of variance per day. This is not most clocks at this period of time. <laughs> most clocks are sad. Yeah, I mean you're you're getting variances of a few minutes per day, which for most uh, applications is actually pretty good. 
Um, but at sea, again, could be a, a deadly error. 1735, a man named John Harrison uh, goes to work on this, and he, he invents a, a clock that's accurate. It's so accurate that they, they measure it over a course of 10 weeks to see how much time it gains or loses. It's within five seconds of where it should be. That's pretty good. It's very good. He wins the prize. I'm sure. Um, clocks have gotten very good. They've gotten much more accurate. A big part of this is just manufacturing practices. Um, the Industrial Revolution uh, allows uh, good, cheap metallurgy uh, in a way that wasn't really available before this. Um, it also uh, avails people of better metals yeah. uh, that are less uh, uh, susceptible to some of the tolerance issues that you've had before this. Um, Harrison's chronometer used, for example, two different types of metals uh, attached together so that temperature variances will uh, not cause the same sort of issues um, that it would with a single metal, like all sorts of little vari uh, uh, little uh, innovations like that to make sure it's as accurate as possible. Um, it used gemstone bearings oh. so that they wouldn't wear down. Like it, it was, it was a very expensive clock. It sounds like it was a very good clock. The first patent for an electric drive clock comes out in 1841, and there's this interesting era where, honestly, when you think of watchmaking, a lot of people think Sweden or uh, Switzerland right away. Um, Swiss watchmaking really only took off in the mid-1800s. Oh. It was kind of a, an Austrian thing before that, <laughs> and an English thing before that. Cuckoo clocks are very Austrian. Like, that's that's where those come from. Yeah, um, yeah they're relative newcomers to the whole thing, but you think of, like, you know, Swiss watches as being the best. There's this parallel that happens over, you know, the latter half of the 19th century, early 20th century, where on one hand, you have these Swiss-made clocks that are being made more and more and more accurate. More and more of them are hitting chronometer status, so they're hitting these tolerances set out by the Navy for how little time you're allowed to lose per day. On the other hand, the technology uh, for alternative timekeeping starts really taking off. Uh, the idea that you'd have to continue winding a clock every single day, uh, or even once a week in some cases, it's just kind of like, why would I have to do that when I can put a power source to it? I shouldn't need to continue winding my clock. It's the 20th century. Come on. Mm -hmm. One of the weirdest things I found through all of this, Rolex, uh, founded in 1905. Okay. I feel like it was going to be older than that for some reason. Originally English, brought to uh, brought to Switzerland after the fact. Oh, yeah, that explains Bond. Uh, he wears Omega these days, my friend. These days, the big deal about Rolex is that it's one of the first uh, watches to attain chronometer status. In 1910, it passed the uh, the certifications. Before that, you couldn't really get that level of accuracy without like a full sized clock. It's just right. Uh, Manufacturing tolerances really is the is the main limiting factor, and, and Rolex prided itself on on extremely uh, careful manufacturing. There was a bunch of other firsts that they got in place. Uh, first self winding watch in 1931. Self winding is really interesting. They've got a little weight in there that uh, engages one way, it doesn't in the other, and your your the natural movement of your arm throughout the day uh, continues winding the the drive spring. It's really quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, they got themselves certified for uh, underwater, which is uh, a big deal, um, having that case uh, sealed for divers and such. The Submariner mm -hmm. line. Can I be honest with you? As much as I like watches, I don't like Rolexes that much. Me neither. They're really not that attractive. Yeah. A gold Rolex is Ugh. not a good sign to me. No. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, in 1927, the first quartz clock is built by Bell Labs here in Canada. Really? 
it was proposed much earlier than this. The piezoelectric properties of quartz were found uh, well in the 19th century. Basically, if you apply an electric charge to quartz and you know certain things uh, in terms of uh, the size of it, the shape of it, the angles it's cut at, it will always vibrate at the exact same frequency. And you can use this to time a, a, a clock. I won't get into it any further than that because I don't understand it very well. <laughs> but here's the deal. The clocks that keep really good time up until this point are using, you know, jewel drives and they're using um, extremely expensive mechanisms. And, and, and they're all very, very, um, you know, all the, all, the, uh, all the accuracy is coming from extremely expensive sources. Quartz is dirt cheap. Quartz is it's just everywhere. It's really easy to get your hands on quartz. And if you have something that's acting so uh, accurately and you're timing it to that thing properly, your drive doesn't have to be that great to be very accurate. Yeah. The average quartz clock is accurate to within 15 seconds per month. Now, this is not as good as the Harrison chronometer. Really? However, Five seconds, yeah. however 15 seconds per month is nothing. That is fine. If you have a clock that is gaining or losing on average a minute every four, like three minutes a year, okay, fine. That's that's not that big a deal for the One, vast majority of the population. Once a year, you look at your wrist and you go, oh, my clock's wrong. And you fix it. December 25th, 1969, Seiko, a Japanese company, unveils the first quartz wristwatch. It took until then for it to be a wristwatch. It took a while to uh, to uh, miniaturize the actual quartz uh, tuning fork properly. Okay. It's really difficult to do. You're getting into harmonic stuff that's, Fair. again, I don't understand all that well. Okay. This is known as the quartz crisis in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Over the next two decades, Swiss watch employment falls from 90,000 people to 28,000 people. Ooh. Here's the thing about watches. And here's the thing about expensive mechanical watches specifically most people don't care how good the movement is they don't necessarily care about the uh, the workmanship that goes into that movement they don't even necessarily care that much about like very uh, high-end styling watches need to tell time that is what watches do that's what clocks do and if they can't tell time well then they're not a good watch or clock and if something tells time better that's a better watch or clock Yes, there are certain uh, mechanical watches, especially when the quartz uh, watch first comes out, that are telling better time. They are also astronomically more expensive. Quartz puts accurate time within reach of a, a, a much higher percentage of the world's population. They are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. And all of a sudden, it's, it's this interesting kind of denouement to this whole story because Time is is all of a sudden a, an incredibly mundane thing. Accurate time is an incredibly mundane thing. This thing that people have been chasing for centuries and centuries, it's just there. Fetishizing until it's ubiquitous. It just, yeah, the, 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 you know, you have kings uh, employing multiple people just to keep time for them. Not to put too fine a point on it, I, I hopped on Alibaba to see what a, what a quartz watch movement is worth. About $1.50. Wow. You have to buy like 300 of them because it's Alibaba, but yeah. it's a buck 50. Yep. That doesn't get you a band. That doesn't get you a face. That's the movement though. That's the core of the watch. And here's the thing about watches and, and clocks that it's important to remember. 
The display doesn't matter. The movement is what matters. There's a very similar movement to uh, a lot of digital watches as there is to uh, analog watches. It's still like at its core an escapement, right? It's it's got to be some sort of escapement and it's got to be tuned to something. And these days it is just an electrical signal running through a quartz tuning fork. That's all it is. It's very very basic. Mechanical watches are still fascinating pieces of of very functional art, but they don't keep time as well. Yep. And that's the the long and short of it. You know, in, in terms of keeping time worldwide, uh, quartz was a standard for uh, over 30 years for like the time that the world set itself to. The atomic clock is built first in, in 1955, like a first functional one. It was hypothesized as early as 1879, but oh, wow. yeah, cesium-based clocks, it's, it's based on this rhythm of uh, electrons rising and falling in covalent orbits. It's accurate to within 30 billionths of a second per year. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we could put those on our wrist for a buck fifty, probably do that instead of quartz. Probably. I mean, we kind of can with watches that automatically synchronize to the atomic clock. Yeah, there is that, and and it's it's quite common to have things, you know, radio clocks and things like that, uh, call into a centralized clock that's that's keeping that sort of universal time. But yeah, it's it's. It's interesting to see one of our earliest inventions kind of come to this point where it's it's not even it's not even thought about. It's just there. It, it's always within reach. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about a couple oddities before we wrap things up. Um, how about a couple non-Gregorian calendars that are still in use today? I'm excited. There are some. The Iranian calendar. It's been used in use for over two thousand years with some modifications. Um, it's tied to exact equinoxes, so there's a quarter day correction in, uh, built into it every single year. It always starts on the equinox. Okay. Currently, it's the year 1397. It's dated to the exodus of uh, Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. Hmm. There's an Indian national calendar. It's used in parallel to the Gregorian one. It's dated to probably uh, the beginning of a, uh, uh, the reign of a king, Chashtana, it, in 87 CE. He's not really that big a figure in Indian history anymore, other than the fact that probably his reign is the thing that started this counting. But uh, on the official government edicts, it's year 1940 right now in, in India. Okay. Uh, Islamic calendar. We talked about that a little bit. Pure uh, lunar calendar. This is There's a religious prohibition built in to the Islamic calendar against intercalary days. Oh. They're not allowed to correct it. So it is purely lunar, um, which means that it drifts around the the tropical calendar it takes i think i think it was about 36 years to, to drift all the way around but it's 354 or 355 days long every year that's why you get ramadan starting at a different point every single year right. um it's currently 1440 because it's also dated to the exodus from mecca to medina but the years are shorter so it's advanced quicker right uh hebrew calendar as we mentioned luna solar still uh roots in babylonian calendar used for religious purposes uh it is currently 5779 uh, the dating system is Anno Mundi, which means the, the year of the world. It was developed in the 8th and 9th centuries by uh, Jewish rabbis. They counted back using the Bible to find out when the world began. Oh. And it is dated from the beginning of, uh, well, as far as they're concerned, the beginning of time in the Jewish tradition. So I mean, they solved the counting backwards thing. I kind of like that. You know what? If you're going to base this on something. That's the most objective got we've got. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good one. I like that one a lot. 
And there's a lot of places that still use regnal calendars. Uh, I mentioned the UK before, but uh, Japan famously is still using regnal calendars alongside the, the Gregorian system. And honestly, until about 30 years ago or so, their regnal calendar was more common. Really? Uh, it's generally, yeah, yeah, it's the year Heisei 30 right now. But yeah, it was, it was, it's relatively recent that Gregorian calendar sort of overtook the, um, the imperial calendar. Hmm. Yeah. You want to talk about decimal time real quick? Yeah, what's that? <laughs> Fine. In the French Revolution, they decide they get rid of everything to do with any sort of nobility or uh, tradition or anything like that. I mean, I'm simplifying greatly, but this is where the metric system gets... It's not like this is a history podcast. <laughs> this is where the metric system gets put into wide, uh, widespread use in uh, France. But like, they got down to basics like in, in, a, in a very admirable way. The... The calendar was adjusted somewhat. Uh, they, they they adjusted it to the founding of the or the declaration of the republic as year one. Uh, they changed the month names, and they they adjusted it to thirty uh, all thirty day months with a five day uh, festival in there. Praise. They know what they're doing. These months were divided into ten day weeks. They're trying to make everything as decimal as possible. Hmm. Um, but the clock, the clock, they decided to make into a ten hour day, and they. Uh, each hour had 100 minutes, uh -huh. and uh, each minute had 100 seconds. Logically. So the way it works out is that each hour on the decimal clock is about 144 of our minutes. So more than double the length. Each minute was about 86 seconds. They tried pushing this for about two years. And it went great? No one liked it. So between 1793 and 1795 or so, that's that's about when they pushed it. And by 1801 or so, there were no examples of this left. The main holdup to adoption is you have throughout France all of these church tower clocks that entire villages base their entire lives around. I mean, most people couldn't afford to, you know, throughout the Middle Ages and the early modern period, you can't afford to have a clock in your house. It's a, a luxury item. You go outside, you look at the town clock and see what that says. The expense to changing those clocks over to decimal time was so incredibly huge that none of them did it. Why would you? So there are some examples of decimal clocks still around, and there's tons of fabric like, uh, uh, of uh, uh, recreations out there. But it really wasn't uh, that big a deal. As with so many other things in the French Revolution, I think it was more about uh, the symbolism of a break from uh, tradition than it is necessarily a, a practical um, solution to anything definitely i'm actually kind of surprised that it wasn't a calendar of 10 months yeah me too seems like an obvious one yeah yeah i agree um but no i i actually double checked that before we started this because i felt like i was maybe remembering it wrong 36 days five day party no all right unless i've unless i've massively messed that up in which case i will no. add it to the notes i'm not suggesting that i just oh it lets I'm a little it i'm a little sad um, he let me down, French Revolution, somehow. Let's talk about one more thing, which is railroads. Here's okay. the weird thing about railroads. Trains move real fast. <laughs> most towns throughout most of history set noon by the sun. You look up in the sky, and when it gets to the highest point, that's noon. Problem is, trains were going fast enough that you would get to towns where the time had changed by several minutes when you got there. Hmm. And this was happening often enough that you had train conductors who had to, uh, who had charts of how many minutes to set their clocks ahead or behind, depending on which direction they were moving. Further complicating things is train schedules were 
uh, not consistently marked in whether or not they should be the time of the place that the train is departing or the train is arriving. Oh, no. Uh-oh. This results in the creation of railway time adopted in 1840 by uh, British Railways. Rail stations kept standard times within themselves, and uh, the clocks at stations would vary from the local noon time, and you'd just have to go and check the rail time uh, to figure out when it's leaving, because if it's ahead or behind the local time, it's too bad we're leaving by rail time. I feel like the essential monopoly of British Railway was what made that possible. More or less. In 1868, New Zealand becomes the first country to adopt mean time. They decided, you know what, this is ridiculous. Um, and a lot of this goes into things uh, be, besides rail, uh, things like uh, telegraphs. Communication and travel became faster and faster to a point where coordination with another place, um, it mattered if it was a couple of minutes off. That's not true for a long, long time. Hmm. It's a very modern concern. But it proved that it can work. That noon, if it's a couple of minutes off of solar noon, it's okay. There's a few proposals for uh mean time in various other places um the person who often gets credit for proposing like a global 24-hour mean time system uh is sir sanford fleming a, a scottish-born theorist who basically said listen let's take the globe divide it up into 24-hour sections and each section has its own time it's time zones like it, we use them now Hmm. Um, it took a while for the idea to work, but in 1883, again, driven by uh, rail uh, in the United States, November 18th, 1883 was known as the day of two noons in the United States. 85% of cities and towns on the direction of uh, the rail lines uh, adopted a mean standard time. Hmm. There were holdouts for quite a long time. It didn't become official like federal policy until 1918, but the vast majority of towns switched times on that day uh to uh to a mean standard time which brings us to daylight savings time yay let's not spend time here they decided in the late 19th century that maybe it would be helpful to change the time when it got dark my note just says awful hmm. uh 1916 austria hungary becomes the first one to adopt this they're hoping to save on energy uh costs during the uh disastrous for them first world war hmm. didn't save it for them probably not good to look to them for guidance and yet we have and everywhere across the world twice a year we give the entire world minor jet lag not everywhere not everywhere there's a few holdouts um the one that i like the most other than uh just refusing to do daylight savings time is the places that have decided always daylight savings time yeah it's kind of nice i like the time and the, uh, the, the light at the the end of the day hmm. It's personal preference. Let's stop changing our time, please. I, I would like that. <laughs> There's tangible economic and, and health, public health uh, impacts of doing that. Anyways, that's that's my soapbox moment. Thank you. One of my coworkers has a survey that's two years old now online that mm -hmm. he keeps bringing up whenever this topic comes up. Please sign my survey if you hate changing the time. Hey, here's all these reasons you should send my survey for why daily savings time is terrible. A lot of places it was adopted during the war, again, for uh, these attempts at saving energy. A lot more places actually only adopted it in the 70s during the OPEC crisis. Oh. Yeah. Joke's on them. It doesn't save any energy at all. No, it really doesn't. It helps uh, retail and you know things like uh, uh, entertainment, sports, stuff like that. Uh, it tends to hurt things for farmers. Um, yeah. But it kind of makes everyone feel really groggy. Yeah. That's bad. Anyways, that's 
a pretty wide-ranging, uh, wide-reaching uh, survey about the way that we measure time, both on long and short scales. Yeah, I could probably have added a lot more material, honestly. Yep, there's, there's lots here. There really is. It's it's such an interesting topic, though, to me for, as I said, the, the, just the, the fact that we don't really consider it, and yet it's such a, an important part of our uh, our lives to just know what, what time is it. It matters in, in so many ways. So, uh, general thoughts, impressions? Yeah, that's neat. There's so many neat details in in a topic that can go as deep and broad as this mm-hmm. and, and goes so far back in history. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very fundamental technology for us. It's one of the few things that pretty much every civilization has taken a stab at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can find at the very least rudimentary shadow clocks in uh, every civilization, often developed completely independently. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly evident technology. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff, though. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate having you here. Well, thanks for spending this time with me. The ways in which we keep track of our time have become more and more precise and reliable over the centuries, to the point that we have the luxury of taking them for granted. As soon as it's given some attention, though, it's a remarkable topic that spans cultures and eras. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the Ottoman Empire, for real this time. That should be up on December 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.